They're bad. They're boys. And occasionally, they talk about running. Yes, it's the Bad Boy Running Podcast with your hosts, Jody Rainsford and David Heller. Come back. Baby, come back. Bye, 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 bye. Bye, 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 bye. I must admit I was a clone to be messing around. But that doesn't mean that you have to leave town. Come back. Hello, Welcome to Bad Boy Running. And um, we, our next guest, quite often we follow almost a, a train of conversations with our, our guests. And actually, this one goes back to Mike Stocks, who, like at the Run Show, I've run with for uh, 10, 12 years, is the reason why I've done Comrades, and or Comrades, depending if you're American or me. Um, and our next guest was someone he recommended running with Hour 7, uh, so working with Hour 7 as a gut specialist who... We have been so desperate to try and find a gut specialist for years and get them on the podcast because we keep on shitting ourselves. And <laughs> thankfully, Jamie is the man who can do that. He's got seven years of research in this. He's uh, he's from Liverpool, John Moores. It's Dr. Jamie Pugh, he's senior lecturer. So welcome to the podcast, Jamie. Whee! very much for having me on this is really daunting you guys have had some unbelievable guests this is legitimately a podcast that i do listen to so um let's had some terrible guests as well though so you know <laughs> you, you're in the spectrum <laughs> oh yeah some of them i just turn off i, I get 10 minutes in and now let's hope i'm not the worst guest you've had that that's if, if i can start, set that far that's great if you see us looking down it's because we're texting each other going wrap it up wrap it up so <laughs> we just, as long as We'll rate it. We'll rate it after after the thing. It depends on so. It depends on what you say. It depends on how controversial you are. That's what that's what we're looking for. Okay, I'll just make sure that I pull out all of the the most controversial things for this to just get people's attention. Like, oh, what did he say? But before before we go, jump into kind of the the story itself, the the image we've got of you on social media. I've just looked at it to look at the questions today. Um, is that what we chose for you, or one you sent to us? Because it, it's a view. You look like you're slowly walking head down. I sent, I sent about five pictures, and that's the only one where it looked like I'm about to give up in a race. <laughs> <laughs> I sent a picture with international athletes. I sent a picture where I'm flying up uh, Coyder Brennan in the trail, half marathon uh, North Wales, and I think I've got a big smile on my face. My quads <laughs> are sort of like bulging out of the bottom of my shirt. And now the one where it looks like I'm just despondent. <laughs> struggling with my own demons <laughs> a great photo what was that where was that that was one of the peak district ultras who what company was it that one of the one of the ultras in the, in the peak district um oh, it was near the end of the race I, I, I did i think i came top 10 so it wasn't a horrible day yeah nice nice well before because we were chatting just before we started recording about we we're saying how are you and you've you're saying you've just come back from western states do we, is that a good place to start, or actually is that better to come to that at the end? Um, do you know what? No, it's maybe a good place to start in that it's genuinely been like the culmination of, of what I've been trying to get to eventually in, in the sort of the research that I, I do. So I, I started my PhD at Liverpool John Moore, so that's where I did my PhD, and I'm now, I've now got a lectureship. And my PhD was completely looking at... Why, why do endurance athletes get gut symptoms? So it's not enough, why do all athletes get gut symptoms? And then you very, very quickly uh, b break that down into, well, do you know what? Lots of endurance athletes get symptoms and you go down even further. And actually, 
compared to all of the sports, ultramarathons in particular, mm. it's a huge proportion. It's so disproportionate really? to every other sport, even other endurance sports. Um, oh, really? Like things like Ironman or, or would that count as or triathlon cycling cyclists? Or? You know, you, you're always going to get different numbers across different sports. Mm. Uh, I argue about this, but, but in general, some of the numbers that, that we've seen and when you pull them across, marathon prevalence is, is normally about... 25%, maybe less in other events, depending on how hot it is, what level of athletes you recruit to the studies, mm. things like that. But if you say it's an upper limit of 25%, that's pretty similar to what you see in Ironman Triathlon, which obviously mm. has a marathon component to it anyway, which is when Interesting. most of the symptoms occur. Yeah. And if you go through to something like the Tour de France, which is huge hours, multi-day, yes, there are like the odd ones where the, the TV cameras like picks picks up one of the, the cyclists at the side of the road doing his business. But in general, the symptoms are minimal, less than the marathon. Mm. So it's not just the duration. There is there is definitely a component to the running aspect of it. And then when you extrapolate that out to an ultra marathon, Western states have had have had studies where they, it's up to sort of 70% of athletes don't just have symptoms, but they directly quote that the symptoms had a negative effect on their race. So they have nausea, they have bloating, vomiting, diarrhea. It's the most common reason for dropout. And you definitely don't see that across across other sports. Yeah, and actually that, that rings true in that I've done many races where it's just part of the race. It's not even because it doesn't necessarily finish you off. You almost expect in a really yeah. long race, at some point something's going to change yeah. and I'm going to have to mix up my food or yeah. not have any for a while and... You just come to expect it, really. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's definitely, and there's there's so many reasons for it. I'm sure we can get into some of the things and maybe there's questions and stuff. But um, so that's where it, that's where it started, as I said, and then done lots of different studies, looking at lots of different aspects to it, and eventually sort of culminated in we got this little international research team together. Myself, we had some researchers from San Francisco, from Illinois. We've got some collaborators over in Ireland, um, and we've ju we've just come back from collecting. Can we can we swear on on here? <laughs> yeah, fuck yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we, we we've just come back from collecting shit samples from uh, forty athletes in the race, essentially. <laughs> Were they aware? <laughs> no, no, no. Just, just, a port, just a random portaloo that you propped up. Yeah, yeah. Like, we made it look like any other portaloo. <laughs> like a weird beat us about. <laughs> <laughs> we we had 40 runners, which is an unbelievable amount. We've got uh, stool samples pre and post race from all of those athletes. We got blood samples pre and post race. And then what's really cool about this study is that I was one of them. We had 10 endurance athletes act as controls. So we followed a, a ultramarathon diet so we took the average diet that the, a mm. marathon, an ultramarathon would have so i had something like nine gels three bottles of sports drink oh wow Alana, from the side two waffles but at rest so we followed the race <laughs> wow. well. we all so, woke up so a normal all... sunday for most of us oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we all woke up at three in the morning we were scoffing down our porridge and yeah, we did. That was our diet for the day to hopefully try and separate what's the effect of all of this type of diet, and then what's the effect of actually going and running this. Really I mean, before we talk about the results, how was that? Because that sounds <laughs> horrific. 
the, that sounds harder than the ultra. Each of the each so there was ten, there are ten of us in that group: five men, five women. I think everyone's experience of it is a little bit different. I honestly didn't find the food that bad, but if someone would have put like a nice brown bread sandwich, crispy lettuce, something like in front of me, I would have scoffed it straight down. Mm. I was just hungry for real food. I didn't really get sick of the the gels and stuff. We had a couple of of the participants who were. Like, do not give me another gel. I cannot stomach mm. another gel. So it's probably really reminiscent of what you see in races as well, in that tolerance to it was was quite varied, even when you're not running. Mm. And so you, I'm surprised that, Jeff. I'd, I'd have thought the body would react more. So we did, we scaled down the total amount. So we, instead of having, some of these athletes might be having maybe three or 400 calories an hour, we mm. were having 200 calories an hour so that's it's still high it's still at the lower mm. end of what you would suggest for an ultramarathon runner it was only after the race we said it would have been cool if we could have got some like blood glucose monitors or something and just mm. see this shoot up and then just stay there all day um <laughs> the muscle isn't going to be ready to take it up you're not going to be using it it will probably be get dumped somewhere um but now is a definitely you weigh yourself kind of before and after as well, just to see. No, we much... didn't. We didn't, but we should have <laughs> done that. But the other thing as well is that obviously people know Western States, it's a hot day as yeah. well. I think that probably took metabolism a little bit. We were obviously still then drinking to first with just plain water and things like that. Um, so I think all that helped a little bit. And um, when it comes to like, poo samples, because I'd, I'd happily give someone like a cup of my pee, but a poo seems more impersonal. Yeah, <laughs> it does. Personal. But it also seems There's like more of I, me in this. <laughs> <laughs> I'd feel like I'd be judged more for my poos than I would for my pees. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because pee's just a sit. <laughs> and you have been. That's the thing. <laughs> so does that? Did, did did other athletes have that? Were, were some that were kind of you know handed it over with shame in their eyes or like a low hanging head or? So we did, so for this study, we did our absolute best to make this easy for the athletes, not make not make them embarrassed, make it as, as just simple and as convenient as we could. So it was completely anonymous in that all of the, the envelopes and stuff, we put them in, lab, in envelopes, essentially, and they put collect them themselves. I think I that's you mean they, they, didn't, they didn't poo in the envelope, it wasn't like a... <laughs> I'm just, did it. I'm <laughs> somebody asked somebody did ask but um essentially it's sort of they just they ship the envelopes as well and then they get shipped to a lab with just a number on it so it's okay. not they ever have to say oh, is this okay and sort of <laughs> what it looks like in the tube but i know what you mean i think most for most people and for the people that didn't want to take part in the study it's more that like it is quite a disgusting process like if you take a urine sample it can be quite passive you just pee into a cup or a container what the stool that? sample you physically have to yeah what is best practice for taking a stool sample because like when you have children they're like oh bring in a stool sample You're like i don't know how to do mm. this like yeah, what, yeah. what what so, is what is best what is best practice for for doing that <laughs> so we have to explain this to everyone so you, they essentially have to <laughs> empty their bladder then you give the in the packet there's like this paper towel shelf that sits on the seat you aim for the shelf and then you have to scoop some of it out yourself and put it in the tube 
So for some people, that's where it was the limit. It's like, no, 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 I don't want to actually touch and scoop my own stool, uh, which is fair enough. I've got, and that's I, the reason they didn't want to do it, because they wouldn't scoop their own stool. That's the, the reason. Some people, we, we still got a really good strike rate. We had four, we had, we ended up, we didn't have enough kits for athletes that wanted to be in the study. So we turned it's, people away. But, uh, but but there are a few, and it's like, no, no, that's where I draw the line. The language you used there is telling. You said that they don't want to scoop their own. What they're happy <laughs> with other people. <laughs> <laughs> And was uh were, was anyone from the study from Newcastle? Because they had a poopa scoopa. <laughs> they say that's how you do Jordy, isn't it? Poopa scoopa. Sorry. We did, anyway. little, <laughs> we did have a little sign because we essentially just stationed ourselves out of the the coffee shop down uh, there in Olympic Village for anyone who's been. And we bought we we made our own little sign that said Poop Crew tw uh, 2022, so that people knew where to find us. This little hand drawn sign on carpet. <laughs> Uh, I Brilliant. think this, actually, this is actually good in the sense that it, it begs the question that we, we always ask when people end up in careers like this. How how do you do you lead to a point where you think, I know my entire focus for my career is going to be studying the contents of <laughs> someone's somewhere of all these people's bowels in order to get there? Like, how how do you like what kind of path do you go on and think? gut health is because the other thing about gut health is that from a non-medical space it seems to be something that is has got massive amounts of attention whereas it, it kind of did it didn't seem like it did in the past it didn't seem like anyone was talking about gut health up no, until no. like five six seven years ago i was gonna say it's, it was crazy i started my phd right at the end of 2014 2015 and i remember instantly already by the end of 2015 as a young mid-twenties early career researcher being invited to conferences to give talks on this because you said it was such a new concept mm -hmm. and then when you think it's a new concept in broader health in sports science this is it's still a baby concept so just the fact that i was studying it meant that people would invite me to these talks i didn't have a quest i still don't have much of a clue there's still a whole load of things that that uh, that are published that are just impossible to keep up with um, but as you said, it's why, something. What is the, why? Why has it only just become like it's? Yeah, like when it should be something that uh, that it's obvious that it should be something that it, you know is like an integral part of of wider medicine. But so why has it kind of only just become something? Is the, I think it's the misconception. I was like, I think it's the 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 technology and the understanding. So even uh, less than five years ago, and I def I've definitely got old presentations where I used to present this. The, the common thought was that we had 10 times more bacterial cells in our gut than we do human cells. So just picture that for a second. You're 10 times more bacteria than you are human. But then about 18 months, two years ago, there was some re-estimations and it was, oh, actually, it's about one-to-one. -one. So that's how quickly the advancements are being made still and the technology is, is only just keep catching up it's only just becoming available more accessible cheap and all the rest of it so i think that's one of the biggest things because in terms of its appreciation for health um you go back to hypocrisies and you go you can go almost centuries and it's known that the gut is important for health but we've just not been able to study it it's so difficult was it because of your coat did your coat come out and everyone went oh yeah your coat is great this is what we need to do yeah, yeah, and it's and it's it's this, it's going to be the same as any other industry. I think again, when I first started, people were sort of familiar with fermented foods, kimchi, sauerkraut, all those things. 
now it seems like everybody knows about it. But it doesn't. But it, that probably coincides with the fact that you walk into a supermarket now and you'll just see them on the shelves all of a sudden, all these products. I think it's it creeps more. It probably all goes hand in hand, doesn't it? We can find out more about it. We've got better technologies for it. Um, it will always lag a little bit because you can think, well, in sports science, we know about lots of things that happen in the muscle because you can just go in with their permission, take samples of somebody's muscle. You can't do that with the the digestive tract. The best thing you can do is collect the stuff that comes out the other end. What mm. we really want to know is, okay, can we take a section of somebody's stomach? Can we take a section of their small intestines, a section of large intestines? But it's just so inaccessible. It's just this essential uh, black box of information that we can't access. So how, how do you then study the stomach? And how do you try and assess because the body is so complex that trying to understand because even you you, meant, you know i mentioned your cult but you've mentioned all these probiotics and and everyone seems to know they're good for you but i don't think anyone could genuinely explain <laughs> no. why or what or how other than yeah friendly bacteria obviously it, but it's true you speak to you do speak to anyone and like about about gut health and everyone talks about it and then you try and get any deeper from like oh yeah friend, like as you say friendly bacteria and like no one yeah no one that goes all the way to the top again as so similarly sort of this is maybe three or four years ago i got invited to a premier league football team and they asked me how can we improve uh, the gut health of all of our players and my first question was why what what's the problem and like no 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 we don't have any issues but we know the gut health is really important and it's that type of thing isn't it but we know okay this is something it might be linked to all of these different things we're hearing lots more about it but there's nothing tangible directly. Those from from my research and lots of other people's research, the the one of the best things we can do at the minute is say, okay, can we do an intervention that we think would target the gut, and then actually we'll just look at the outcome from that. So it could be like the most simple one is, okay, can we look at putting a probiotic or an intervention in? Do we then reduce gut symptoms in endurance athletes? We can take some measures alongside it to try and best guess what the mechanism is, but the primary outcome is going to be, does it have the, the final uh, effect that we want it to on some other aspect of health? So immune function, sports performance, sickness, allergy, all of those things. That's probably the best thing that, that lots of research does at the minute. And is there, is there actually an objective way of measuring gut health? Like I, I know, lots of people talk about you know, oh, to to like measure how good your health is, and then uh, like an objective measure to be able to see how much it's improved through taking probiotics or anything. And how how kind of accurate are those? I think the the broader term of health, it, it would only be as accurate as if we just wanted to measure somebody's overall health. So there's right. there's not great ways. The the most important things initially are, is there a disease? Yes or no. Are there symptoms? Yes or no. And that would just be the most basic start point in the same way that you would assess is just somebody healthy in general. Do they have any disease or do they have some symptoms that mean uh, they, they affect their day to day life? The, the, you can get the microbiome assessments as we, we've taken samples from, from lots of different athletes, lots of different studies. In terms of can you make a measurement of health? I'd say no, not yet. You, you obviously can screen it for lots of different 
lots of different things or inflammatory hormones or anything like that. So, so the assessment micro- kind of gives you a profile rather than an assessment, like just a profile of what the of what what yeah, the is and, like. and it doesn't tell you much of anything. We've done this with Premier League football teams. Obviously, we've done it with these athletes. What you'll end up is you'll end up with lots of graphs, lots of um, lots of Latin names for these bacterial species. But it doesn't then say it's not like at the moment we can say this one species is really good for you. If you don't have it, you're unhealthy. Or these ten, it's it is a bit at the minute of saying, okay, can we at least start to list things that we don't want to see? So we don't want to see pathogenic bacteria. We don't want to see lots of different strains of, of some of the E. coli strains. So again, it's it's more looking at it from that side. I don't know if maybe we will get there in five, 10, 15 years where we can start to say this type of composition resembles someone of this category. Um, so how do you, how do, how do things like probiotics and, and, um, you know, things like Yakult work then? I mean, in terms of, you know, if, if there is no proper way of assessing how, you know, how healthy a gut is in an objective sense, what do they actually offer anything that can do anything? Or are they simply just flooding with a certain type of bacteria? And, you know, because that's the thing, how different probiotics are assessed, isn't it? By the millions or billions of, of yeah. certain bacteria they have in them. So how, how does that how does that work? Just so that like listeners who have been told to take pro- probiotics by doctors or nutritionists, things like that, understand what that effect it has. Is this the bit where I have to sort of give my conflict of interest to say that I have had research uh, funded by probiotic companies? <laughs> Is it that yeah, is it I'm bullshit? Yeah, that's what I should have I said. Right? The kombucha. Big, big kombucha. Yeah. I am. I am on the. Hopefully, you see that I'm not biased for this. So the the mecha, there's different mechanisms by which the bacteria can work. So they can they can compete with other pathogens, for example, in the gut. So they can compete for nutrients and they can compete for space on the on the lining of the intestines. And then when they're when they're there, they they're also they can be alive. So if it survives the stomach and reaches the, the the small intestines, it's a living organism. So it will be metabolizing. It will be uh, ex- excreting different hormones, different proteins that has or can have a syst- systematic effect. And they also can directly interact with the the immune system as well. So there are different models that have been shown. Uh, that they can have an effect. I think you're right in that no one has shown a great uh, representation of why we need this amount other than, okay, we've used this amount in a certain study and it seems to have some effect. The effects, like most studies, they're never huge. They never take somebody from death's door to sprinting down the road. They never take an athlete who has chronic GI symptoms to no symptoms whatsoever the next day. Um, and the best way in terms of the numbers is is if you look at all of the commercially available products, you can find a probiotic on the market that has one bacterial strain in it, so one species, and it has about 7 billion colony forming units, which is the, the units to assess how much is in there, all the way through to products that have 10 or more bacterial strains. I actually got link, sent uh, a link to one today that has 24, and they can have 450 billion. So it's almost, was that, 25 times the amount, and that's per day that you should have. And these are sort of best guesses. This is still 
a few billion compared to the trillion that you have in your intestines. So it's, you're right in that how big of an effect can they have? It's, it's not going to be something that's of huge effect. Whether they're useless, I don't know. Um, whether and, and they're the... It, give us a, to give us an understanding of like what what is if someone if you met the person with the most perfect gut health that you could ever imagine and you then looked at someone with horrific gut health like what would the journey what would the differences be like what are the real repercussions the negative impacts if you if you really don't have good things and bad when you have bad things and are there some things that you'd be like oh well they have lovely glowing skin or um, that you we can we can spot in someone who we, we know has really good health. Are, are there signs like that? This is this is where the gut has become almost like the new panacea of everything, isn't it? If you look, yeah, if you go on YouTube true. now or you go on Instagram, you go on different places. It's linked with it's linked with mental health. It's linked with skin health. It's linked with uh, athletic performance. It's linked with all of these different things, and it probably is in the sense that most of our organs could be. Um, you know, it does handle all of our nutrients. So how big of an effect it has on all these things. Um, I've written an article uh, last year when we were talking about the gut for female athletes. And we found all of these potential links that it could have. It could have links to sleep. It could have links to bone health. It could have links to menstrual health. But we, we, we tried to caveat that by saying, but so do a lot of other things. And this could all be as, 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 uh, associations as well. It's not these things are definitely going to cause some of these changes is it and, possible to is it like if you have like really poor gut health and i'm talking very specifically in well situation that i i was in and, and i felt ill because of it so i had um i had multiple courses of antibiotics because they were incorrectly prescribed while i had tonsillitis and i ended up having three bouts of tonsillitis needing a huge number of antibiotics and it caused all sorts of problems with with my gut and their, their suggestion is essentially i'll take some probiotics um and and that literally was the end of the the entire conversation um is if firstly how damaging are antibiotics to to the gut in terms of something something like that because i went to a nutritionist and the nutritionist wasn't able to help me like no one was really able to help me and it i, I don't it, it feels better now and it it seems to be better but i don't know how good my gut health is can you if you have if you damage your gut with things like that with with antibiotics can it be repaired is it something that is repairable so the gut is unbelievably stable to an extent especially once you reach adulthood so even when you, you see studies where you can cause rapid change by either diet, antibiotic use, or anything like that, you do find that over time it goes back to pretty much what it was like before. So it's not to say that in that in that uh, reshuffle period you're not going to be more susceptible to infections or diarrhea or symptoms, um, maybe a little bit of a, a difference in your immune function and things like that. But it is incredible how it does seem to be this really difficult thing to sort of keep turning away from what it has been going into adulthood. So how your the method of, of birth, whether it was cesarean or natural birth, whether you had antibiotics as a child, whether you were breastfed or not, these things seem to have almost as big an impact, if not a bigger impact on our microbiome as that in our adulthood in terms of what wow. does that cause, core the core microbiome look like 
as what we do now. It almost sets a template that the body tries to stick to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not to say that it's not changeable. We've taken we've taken samples from from athletes over the course of like a week, and you can see these little changes throughout. But in exactly what we've already said a few times, um, we don't know what that means. We don't. We're not. We we can't. We're not at the point at the minute where we can say, oh, do you know what that athlete was healthier on Monday when their microbiome looked like this than they were on Wednesday when it looked slightly different. Um, so all these things, it's. It's it definitely has a, a role to play. I don't know if if the research is there in terms of from, from a microbiome standpoint, can we really start to think, okay, this is what the perfect microbiome looks like and this is how we should go about trying to achieve it. Okay, so there's another question I've got, which which I th I thought might be re related to this, but maybe it's not. And it's again, it's something that's come about as a result of um, kind of the greater interest in gut health, but something that's always seems a little bit of a funny news headline as well so it goes fecal transplants what are they i mean i kind of understand what they are but why <laughs> why would you do why would you need a fecal transplant what what does that do and um, and that taking something from someone's gut and put it into someone else how would that help what just explain that if possible so there are so many trials ongoing at the minute in lots of different conditions the idea yeah. being so and and in animal models, you see some extraordinary changes. So if you take the microbiome from an obese mouse and put it into a germ-free mouse, that mouse will become obese. Similarly, if you, take, if you take the microbiome from a lean mouse and put it into an obese mouse, that mouse will become lean. And there are lots Whoa. of studies where you can see all of this. They've seen similar results with anxiety in animals. If you take biome from an anxious animal but all of these so we know that it has some causative effect the results in humans are much less promising so far um again probably because we're not germ-free at the moment we already have a microbiome the only condition where there seems to be an effect at the minute of, of uh fecal microbial transplants is in c diff patients the so patients with an infection and there's about an 80% of uh, efficiency in, in those patients. It's not to say that uh, FMT won't be beneficial for in other circumstances, but at the minute it's not, um, it's not a registered treatment uh, or a recommended treatment for, for anyone. But I know for a fact universities, some commercial companies are trying to isolate bacteria from athletes, for example. There's a company in America that took samples from Boston Marathon runners. They found mm. that one particular species in mm. particular could metabolize lactate and turn it into short chain fatty acids, which we can use for energy. And they're now trying to do some trial. They put the, again, they put that strain in mice and the mice had better endurance performance. So there are uh, these things going on. In terms of is it there yet, or can we just start swallowing poo capsules or, or having a microbial transplant? What, 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 what actually oh, swallowing. <laughs> You're a different I way. I assumed it was, okay. What actually happens in a fecal <laughs> transplant? I mean, it's really difficult to figure out what that means. Excuse, like, excuse the terrible, but if you've got a strong stomach, there are lots of videos on YouTube where you can see the different ways that it can be done. So. I've seen studies that have used like nasal gastric tubes and they just feed it in 
I've seen where they're in capsules. They literally just put like shit in yeah. someone else's shit into your yeah. intestines. Yeah, yeah. So just that in sounds one like day. something that you did at boarding school, David. Like, it's like an Arnie. Arnie be like, eat shit. It's classic, <laughs> classic Arnie death. I'm already <laughs> thinking of trademarking the 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 company uh, catchphrase, eat shit, get fit. So when, nice. when we eventually find nice. it, that's your business model, your business model is brilliant because you've gone to the Western States, you've got <laughs> shit from some of the best athletes in the world, <laughs> and you can just bacteria, and that's it, and that's the that's that's you could start marketing that. Do you want to be as good as whatever? That's brilliant. Or shit lips, healthy hips. There's a lot. It's good to rhyme. Shit is great for rhyme. It goes a lot. It goes a lot. I mean, is that is that and, is that the issue with 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 something like gut health and stuff? Is that there's a lot of these um, these concepts and ideas that are, you know are like you say still in like trial phase and stuff, and it it it's almost people are jumping on this like commercial aspect to it and, and possibly confusing people as to how mu how important it is, how much it is. It's in their interest to make it into something bigger, but if you're still at not at the stage where actually where there is a clear and definable improvement that could be made through certain actions. Like, and what, what are people marketing? I was say, and isn't that just so many of the the health industries eight like uh, targets from the last I don't know what I was going to say decades, but it's probably not centuries, isn't it? If you can find some intangible that sounds really scientific, that sounds novel, that uh, piques people's interest, they said you don't have to give them any anything tangible at the end, but you've given them this target of gut health. And there's definitely been some of that, and you see it in newspaper articles, online articles, Instagram, you know, all of these things you see it, improve gut health. And as I said, if you don't have symptoms and you don't have a disease, there's no way you can measure that you've improved your gut health. But what? it sounds great because it's linked to all of these different things. What, what, what's the biggest bullshit claims or uh, bullshit comments that you've heard so-called experts or health experts do that you must have heard some utterly ridiculous like cl comments or claims that... i think it's just all of the all of the ones linked to that is that all of a sudden people will be promoting fermented foods for, for no apparent reason um which actually if you just start eating a ton of food it's like when people turn to a vegetarian diet like you all of a sudden eat lots of fiber you eat lots of fermented food. if anything for a few days things are going to be worse like you're going to have all of these symptoms and whereas you there's no reason you definitely have to do it to begin because you didn't have any symptoms to start with. You didn't have any issues with your health or immune system or anything like that. Um, so I think it's not, there's not been one thing in, in total. The one, so lots of my research has been in probiotics. When I hear any company say that their probiotic is better than X companies, that always does my head in a little bit because again, there's no, Proof for that, you you rarely, if ever, see studies comparing one commercial probiotic to another for obvious reasons. No one company would fund that, and these studies are very expensive to run. Um, so what you end up with is with lots and lots of probiotics on the market that have had a very small handful of studies uh, being carried out with them, uh, and yet then athletes, coaches, uh, just individuals will, will come to someone like me and say, okay, which is the best probiotic to have? And the truth is I don't have a great answer for that. So would you say, because I've got sauerkraut downstairs currently being made in my cupboards. I've done kombucha in the past. I've done uh, kefir. 
Uh, is there any evidence for any of those? Please say no. Genuinely being... <laughs> and discaffeine <laughs> while you're at it. <laughs> yeah, any of those genuinely being good for people who have normal health? Yeah, do you know what? It's the same as increasing... It's probably a, a similar level, maybe, as increasing your just fruit and vegetable intake, isn't it? But like, we know that it's, it is beneficial for our long-term health. So I don't think it's, there's going to be no effect. Um, how I think in, in general, it's going to be it is a good thing to do for people to have. I think it could be in again, sort of five or ten years, maybe like one of the new food groups that gets discussed a little bit, or is part of I don't know, like a government recommendation or something mm. like that, where we we recommend people eat more of these types of foods. Um, it's certainly more sustainable as well. From a, from, a, from a practical perspective, then what what is the best way to maintain gut gut health? Because you you know again you hear lots of different things. It's like mm. a, 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 a huge variety of foods is better than you know, sticking to, to uh, a smaller range of foods. Like what what is what is the kind of truth or is there literally? This one's really, I always I always struggle with this one because I always feel like the world's most boring answer. Where yeah, it is just a variety of fruits and vegetables, lots of whole grains. That, you know, you're not eating any too much of any one food in in excess. Um, I, I definitely don't think you need to cut out lots of lots of foods or like the artificial sweeteners or something like. You definitely don't need to cut them out completely. I'm not saying again that you have ten cans of diet coke a day, but the odd one. The, there's no evidence that those things have a huge negative impact especially if you're doing the nine out of uh, nine out of ten other things right um the only time I, I suggest to to athletes if they try things like a probiotic or something like that in particular is if there has been either an issue to begin with so you've you've tried little shifts in the diet and again for me it's always so i've worked with like international marathon runners who've had digestive problems we've never got to the stage of trying a probiotic because we did other things first that worked. So then right. it was a piece of, okay, now we don't even need mm. to try this ninth or 10th uh, intervention. We, we did all the other easy things first. So really um, it's, it's, it's where, you know, you really, the only time you really need to, I suppose it's like um, uh, running style or anything else. Like if you've got a problem, that's where you need the intervention. And there are lots of other things to get to before you before you do pro, probiotics. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And out, out of interest, what would those what would your kind of checklist be of going through those easy things you can address with someone with stomach issues? So there are lots of things that could cause uh, runners, in particular, to have to have gut symptoms when they're they're training. Excellent. This is pretty much my my PhD <laughs> and most of my my work afterwards. Um, so it's it's definitely not a okay we can just instantly find the answer it's normally we need to take a little bit of time to to go through things and the things that we start looking at are the athlete history has there been any uh diseases uh either diagnosed or undiagnosed are they on any medications uh, the, the what does their supplement use look like because there are lots of little hidden things that can cause gi symptoms like lots of vitamin c people think they're doing really uh, really good things for their health by cramming lots of vitamin C in their diet. But if you're taking that on as a supplement by sort of in the grams, that causes GI issues. 
Um, so we normally do little things like that. We can look at a little diet history, what type of foods do they eat in general, then what type of foods are they eating the day before a hard session or the morning of a hard session, what time are they eating that meal, if it's during the longer, longer stuff, what are they consuming in that session, and then also what does that compare to what they've done before. So there's there's lots of different things um, with some of the athletes, like it's taken time. So again, I think you might be on mute. You're on mute, man. Sorry. Um, what, what would you say the common red flags are within that or the common mistakes that you find athletes making? The most common mistakes is the nutrition side of things. Absolutely. And it'll either be they're eating the wrong things the day before or the more like the, in the meal before a session and what time they eat that last meal. Um, and then the nutrition marathon runners in particular, um, it's maybe a little bit different for ultras, but marathon, the big one is always they do stuff in the race that they've just never done before. And it's, I think people like to kid themselves in that, oh yeah, I had a gel in a long run, but yet in the race it was, oh, I tried to take on four gels. Mm. And it was also, I took on a gel on an easy 90 minute long run but then actually when you come to do your marathon, you're running 30 seconds a mile quicker and you're trying to do that for two and a half, three, four hours. There's those little subtleties and the differences. Um, so with the some of the elite marathon runners, by the end of, of a, say, a 10-week block, they're doing hard long-run sessions, taking on full race nutrition. So that it's a complete plan. I know I'm going to drink this exact amount of fluid with this exact amount of carbs and they're replicating it in probably two sessions a week at least. As they get into the final week, they might even be taking on uh, some form of carbs in every single run that they're doing, just so that they're training that gut. The gut's trainable. Um, I don't know. This, I, this is, I suppose, really valid. In fact, did, it was was it last night? The like the American Fourth of July food eating competitions, and you mm. see them eating like. It's crazy amount of hot dogs, isn't it? It's something like 70 hot dogs. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. But the gut is trainable. Like the stomach can stretch. We can increase the amount of transporters that we have for glucose and fructose and things like that. Um, so if you're not training the gut the same way that you're training your muscles before a race, you can't then be surprised when, when things start to go wrong uh, during a competition. And, and is the best way to train it just by taking on more and more as we run or are there other ways in which we can be trying to train ourselves into taking because that it used to be 60 grams carbs then it's gone up to 90 with a dual tract but then it's supposedly now you can train to 120 um are there any tactics or it, do you know what it's definitely relative and it's definitely personal experience so the 120 i would say for now if you're a runner and you're not trying to break two hours for the marathon like Kipchoge, I wouldn't go up to the 120. Because it's one of the, we see it in the lab all of the time. We do a cycling study in the heat for three hours. You can put anything down someone and they'll eat it, they'll consume it, they'll have no issues whatsoever. You try to do that with someone on a treadmill in the lab, even after an hour, they're already struggling, they've got symptoms, it wants to come out one way or the other, or they just don't want to carry on eating or drinking. Mm. Um, it's definitely individualized. If you're only having uh, one gel every 90 minutes at the minute, I definitely wouldn't then think, okay, I've got to get to 60 as quickly as I can. 
So we definitely do it of this sort of phased approach where we, we plan it and we structure it exactly the same as, as the rest of the training program. So it could be uh, 12 weeks out, to begin with, you're just experimenting. What brands do you like? What flavors do you like and not like? And we're constantly making notes. If you have a bad experience with a particular gel or drink or something like that, then we'll just bin it. We'll make a note of it. We'll never touch it again. If there's a flavor that we really like and things like that, then we'll, that's the one that we'll try and add two of or three of. And it's just this slow build over time. So like I said, week one of the real plan, it could be 30 grams an hour and that's it and drinking mainly to first or having a few sips and it'll just build and build and build and build we'll we'll plan it all out exactly to the point that four weeks out at least we're now at full race prep because one we want to train the gut but two we want to fuel particular marathon type sessions as well or particular ultra type sessions as well and the fueling is only going to help that um it is really weird in that fueling in running in particular has this like negative connotation alongside it, doesn't it? Like everybody mm. thinks it's this huge double-edged sword or not, maybe not even a double-edged sword. It's just the, ah, oh, it's this thing that I've told, I'm told I should do, but I don't really want to because I think it will give me symptoms. Whereas it's the stuff that I try to do mostly with the athletes is trying to like flip it a little bit and empower them. And so that, no, this should be like, when you play like video games when you were younger, if you like go on Mario Kart or something like that, this should be like when you go through like one of those boxes and you get a little power up. It should be every time you feed, it should be a positive thing that you're now adding fuel to the fire and you'll be able to keep going longer than the people who aren't taking this stuff on. But it, it definitely has it's, it's neg negative. It's completely negative, isn't it? I think even the I was looking at some of the questions that we've we've got yeah. and um, they're all really negative, yeah. aren't they? I mean, <laughs> I think it's actually like I think yeah, with the ultra safety had a question. Uh, she had a few questions actually, and one of those was how can you train your stomach to eat more? Uh, like one of the other questions, if you feel nauseous, what's the easiest way to get calories in? I think that's that's probably a kind of a common, yeah. a common question. You know, when you're feeling like that, but you know you need to get calories in, is there are there common strategies that that, that have been proven to to, to use that? Uh, so the, the first part for that, and this is this sounds like a, a bit of a patronising uh, way to put it, is obviously the best thing to do is trying to trying to do all of the things to begin with that pre prevent the nausea from happening, and they can be things that are sort of poor to get poor performance. So uh, things like make sure you're not taking anti-inflammatories before the race. I think ultramarathon particularly you see a little bit less, but there's still a bit of a culture of I'll cover all bases and I'll just pop a few ibuprofen before the race. But we know there's lots of studies showing that that can lead to or play a big part in nausea um, presenting itself later on in a race. If you're dehydrated or you become over de overly dehydrated, that seems to correlate really well with nausea, again, which seems a bit counterintuitive. Once you are nauseous, I would have my – this is where the planning comes in, and you want your go-to options, and you want your plan A, plan B, plan C options – and with some of the ultramarathon runners, that's exactly what we do. The plan A could be at all of these specific time points or checkpoints, these are the foods that we're going to have. However, if well, for whatever reason you get flavor fatigue, if you feel nauseous, it will then be, okay, let's drop down to our B option or our sort of alternative option. Because it could and be... It, and is there, an, is there a good 
almost a rule of thumb where if you've been having this type of nutrition, your B option should change in that in a certain way? Should it be like saltier? Should it be so one of the one of the things you don't want to do is then to just go to water only or something like that because you might not even be helping you could be making the problem worse so you if the symptoms might be because of uh early onsets of like hypernutremia which is obviously like deadly it can be deadly if you only add water you're making that that scenario worse what you want to try and do is put more fuel in at the levels that you can tolerate so one of the things that happens as you exercise more and more and become more fatigued is that your perception of sweetness increases massively. There's been some really cool studies where they uh, researchers essentially just uh, half dose uh, cups of sugar. So you have one that's got a load of sugar in, one that has next to none in, one that has nothing in. And you, you ask uh, individuals to taste them at rest and say, which is the one uh, that has no sugar in it, for example, and they maybe get to a point that's three quarters of the way along that range. You exercise them to fatigue. All of a sudden, they can pretty much taste sugar in every single one of them, and the first one that's got lots of sugar in it tastes horrible. So your your taste perception will change throughout the race. So that's where it is good to have a different option, like a salty option, a more savoury option, uh, and plan for. Yes, your your taste perception could change. Is that, is that just with sweetness? Does it, does any other like uh, like taste changes? Uh, you know, oh, do you know what? I don't know. You stumped me a little bit there. I was going to try and just blag an answer, but I've definitely... <laughs> <laughs> um, I've never looked at the sweetness side. So there are definitely differences in perception of um, of of menthol. I've seen some of the research in that. So menthol can have a bit of a cooling effect, and it does seem to have more of an effect when you, you exercise in the heat in particular. Um, but I'm not sure about some of the other, the other tastes. But this, especially for the ultra side of things, this is like a huge aspect to it. I think the depending on how long you're going to be out there for. Um, so I, I know one of the athletes at Western States, who one of the male athletes who came in the top five, pretty much did the entire race on drinks and gels. That's so 15... Mm and a half hours or so on mostly drinks and gels. No real food, no real savoury options, a few different flavours. But that's someone who, even for that length of time, is exercising at a relatively high intensity. So the, what you want there is really absorbable foods. But to get to that point, to only be able to have those, is is a plan. It's, it's in the exact same way that the, the, all the, other, the rest of the training is built up. If you're out there for maybe 30 hours in that same race, maybe that would be much more difficult to follow. Maybe you do want some more savory options. Maybe you do want some whole foods in there, not just because you're out there for a longer time, but because you can tolerate it because your relative intensity might be a little bit lower. So you can digest it a little bit more easily. And, and out of interest, because Maria asked this, is what actually is gastro? intestinal what actually creates and what is the actual issue in your in your gut that's happening so there's lots there's lots of different things nausea is probably the most complicated one because it can come from uh like circulatory measures as well so that's where so you can have this essentially you can have um damage to the intestinal cell line and that can have this big inflammatory process it spills out all these cytokines in the blood 
which then give you this symptom higher up. It can also be caused by if you overconsume and you go above your own individual tolerance, mm. so what happens is you food empties from the, the stomach, it then starts to go along the small intestines where you have all of these transporters to take up glucose, to take up fructose, there's some capacity to take up protein. If you oversaturate those, that food just keeps moving along the small intestine. Once it hits a certain point in the ileum, you have these other set receptors there then that put the brakes on everything. So if those receptors sense food, sense nutrients, uh, but particular nutrients, it pretty much sends a signal to the stomach to say, hang on, you've got to stop here, stop sending stuff through. That can cause nausea because your stomach just essentially stops emptying or slows down how much it empties. Symptoms from the other way are usually uh, what you'd probably eaten the day before. Because you just have to think about how long the intestines are and how slowly things move through there, especially the long intestines. I think people have this idea that you have a gel and it's almost instantly coming out the other side. What's probably actually happening is that whatever you ate the day before, you've eaten a gel, you're not used to having food on the run or something like that. That's sending a signal to the brain to say, oh, food is incoming, like clear the decks type thing. So that's where all of these different ways of training are so important. And thinking about the timing of meals, an obvious one, I think everybody probably tries to do this, but an obvious one that some athletes don't always think about is that try and go to the toilet the day, like the night before or the morning of a race, um, try and almost get out whatever is in the large intestine in particular. And what, what should we be eating the day before then? Because I, I think most people... To either fluctuate, there was a, a time when everyone was saying you need to have like seven grams of carbs per kilo that you weigh the day before, which is ridiculously high. Um, long, but yeah, but yeah. then, you know, that was a theory. But then, you know, Mike, for example, just said he eats slightly more carbs, but not an insane amount a couple of days before. Are there some, are there some rules or myths that we, sh we should be following or shouldn't be? I think the most... I think in in order to reduce the symptoms, the most important things are to eat slightly lower fiber, reduce the fiber, reduce the residue. So you are looking at like you know, so white rices, white breads, those types of foods. Uh, if you're going to have fruits or anything like that, try and peel the skin off. Um, go for the lower fiber for options. And that's what are, exactly what are high fiber kind of fruits and things that people might not consider. Most of the things with, with skin or pulp, that'll be the big one from from uh, from food. Uh, from Especially fruit. like potatoes, and not say, necessarily great. No, as I say, from potatoes, most, uh, from vegetables, most of the starchy type stuff is going to be higher in fiber. Because essentially it's, it's undigestible. It travels all the way through the small intestine. It goes all the way through the large intestine. The, the bacteria there will, will sort of ferment it but it, it's what essentially adds a lot of bulk to, to stools. So you're, you're just going to have something sat there. If you can reduce the amount of food that's reaching there, you're reducing the, the, the total volume that's there. But this is something, again, you need to go out and practice. So if you've got a, B, a couple of B races in your schedule, almost mimic what you're going to eat the day before the big race. Mm. So some of the athletes, the easiest way to that I've found with, with some athletes who are a little bit unsure to carb load is just to add a couple of sports drinks throughout the day. We have a really simple diet, 
and then just add one or two sports drinks. Even better if it's going to be the drink that you choose to have during the race or the gel you choose to have during the race. Because, again, it just gets you familiar with it. It puts you at ease a little bit with that brand and that gel or whatever it's going to be. And you haven't had to sit there and demolish an entire extra bowl of pasta or an extra bowl of cereal. You can get, especially with some of the, the recent, you can get an extra 80 grams of carbohydrates in just a drink that you sip throughout the day. And um, in terms of the kind of pre-race, the morning of, you know, I'd, I'd always have a couple of bagels, which would be up to kind of 100, 150 grams of carbs. Um, and then then also Lucasade would have everyone believing you've got to be drinking, like slapping down, taking a gel five minutes before. Like what would you what would you say your breakfast should be? And when should people start then taking on carbs? in terms of the race so the the breakfast so because so essentially the morning of you're trying to top up the liver so again something else that's really difficult to examine the so sports science is terrible in its recommendations for pre-exercise in that the range of the recommendations is one to four grams per kilogram of body weight so if you think about that as a 70 kilo athlete you're yeah. going from 70 to 280 grams of carbs. So we're terrible at is just not doable in a more. So we're, we're terrible at recommendations for that. The most yeah. I'd say if you aim for the sort of lower end of that, one to two, and then again, it's going to depend on the form you take it. We're mostly going to be eating food um, as we do it. Food, most food has about a half life in the stomach or half emptying rate of about uh 90 minutes to three hours so that's one of the reasons why you, you get lots of recommendations say try and have that pre pre-exercise meal at least two hours before two to three mm -hmm. hours before anything after that very small volume it sh maybe fluids would be easier than solids um and then as i said but you don't necessarily need to your muscles should be topped up from what you've eaten the day before if you as long as you have something that's fairly easily digested on the morning and you time it enough. Um, there was actually a really cool study a few years ago where they looked at athletes who had symptoms and one of the biggest predictors for symptoms was those who'd had food in the 90 minutes before the race start in terms of their meal. So not, not anything, but who had their pre-race meal 90 minutes before the start or sooner were more likely to have symptoms during the race. And because um, I, I think most people probably would know to at least give at least like 90 minutes or so. Um, would you start taking on fuel then as soon as you start racing to try and extend the, the period in which you're, you're, you're allowing your stomach to process? It, do you know what? It probably depends on the, the distance of the race. I think if you're going for an ultra or something like that, your the rate that you're using fuel is probably lower so you can afford to give it 40 minutes or so say mm. and then you might want to start again just in small amounts maybe every 20 to 30 minutes taking something on in something like the marathon and if you are going for a pb if you are pushing things mm. you probably want to so with some of the elites they're literally having something at every single station every single aid station every 5k because they want to keep carb carbohydrate oxidation nice and high. They know they can tolerate it. They're having something every opportunity. Mm, interesting. Okay. As I said, and, and that 
it's it's definitely something that the individual has to to work with. It's relative to their own goals and stuff like that. If yeah, and to you because there's now a lot of brands that are, are suggesting drinks over gels, um, blocks over gels. Are there are there any? Is there a huge difference with how that fuel hits your stomach when it's Obviously, real food is very different for ultra, but for general running, is fructose in any form or glucose in any form essentially the same, or does it make a difference? I feel like this. I feel like I almost teed. Like I might have fed you this question because I literally I was uh, an author on a paper that we published about two months ago that looked at that exact question, um, and there was no difference. So we looked okay. at blocks, gels, drinks, and in. In that, if they had the same carbs in them, because obviously it, it, it might be different if you look across brands. Yeah. But from within the same range, there was no difference. Um, so I think you can go to, which makes it quite nice. I think especially for for us mere mortals who are who don't have elite drink stations and who can put whatever they want there because well, can't reality, afford elite yeah, uh, yeah, elite reality, nutrition. Like if, if if the if the answer would have been that drinks were better. Okay, that maybe serves the elites who can have their own bottles at every station. But what about us who have to maybe carry our own nutrition? So yeah. it does. It does. It is quite nice finding that you probably can mix and match. You could have some blocks. You could have some gels. You could also take on some drinks along the course as well. And do you do you think these hydro gels are significantly better than normal gels? <laughs> We've done some pilot testing. We've never found any difference. The cap. I, so again, I my guess, and this is only a guess, is that for anyone who isn't trying to again break like two ten for the men, I don't think there's going to be much of a difference whatsoever. I think, and what, why is that? Because they don't need to burn as many calories, though. No, so essentially the benefit for those is that it it, it uh, reportedly empties from the stomach quicker. But if you look at anyone who's exercising at around about 70, 75% VO2 max, how quickly something empties from the stomach isn't the limiting factor for how quickly we can absorb and use that fuel. What it does start to become a factor when you're exercising at sort of 80% upwards. And that's mostly to do with like blood flow being moved away from the gut and things like that. Um, if you exercise at 70%, you can pretty much empty drinks from the stomach as quickly if not quicker than at rest once you start pushing that exercise intensity even higher you do see a drop off so things will just sit in there for longer so as i said if you're exercising at maybe 75 percent the hydrogel probably won't have any benefit maybe if you start to look at some of the elites who are pushing they're not just pushing the absolute pace they're pushing their own relative effort um, maybe that's where you might start to see a difference. Um, but that's not to say that they're not as good. Like you, mm. anecdotally, you speak to lots of athletes and we all know the brands that, that use these. They, Some people love them and then some people use them for a little bit and come off them. I think that in itself shows that the the marketing and the hype has, has definitely driven people to them. But the effect can't be that big because you also see people uh to sort of lose interest in it and go back to other brands and try other things again because it's not cured yeah. all of their issues it's well, not that, been the sort could, of magic bullet that could be finances as well because they're what, four pounds a pop i've got some <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah that's got to be one of the reasons as well 
I've got some other questions. It shows oh, isn't huge because for all of us, if or for most of us, if we just had a marathon or a big goal in mind, we thought, oh, do you know what, four pound, I'll do it every week, but for this race I would. But they said, but it's not all of a sudden, it, it's not like carbon plate shoes where you put them on and you go, yes, undoubtedly I'm quicker now. Yeah, 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 true. Um, especially as a, for a lot of people, it's it's that they're not actually taking on the fuel when they when they should be. Um, so, what is there is there a way? This is from Mrs. Mrs. Miss Lee, uh, standard one from our from our crowd. Is there anything you do to stop yourself shitting yourself? <laughs> yeah, all the reasons we just said, and um, and then buy the probiotics that fund my research. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> the the biggest one so it's how often it happens as well yeah I, I think one of the things for for runners um is that we all have probably experienced it and that's probably because we all train at different times of the day in general or we might have changed the time once and like for most healthy individuals we go uh every so we go between one to two times a day maybe once every other day so I think there is definitely a case of sometimes you're just going to go because that was the time of day you, or around about the time of day you were going to go. You hadn't been to the toilet yet. And you're gonna, if it's something that's chronically happening, you've, the two things that you need to do is one, go and make sure that there's nothing sinister underlying. So go get yourself checked out. Go and rule out any infla inflammatory bowel diseases. Go and uh, maybe see if it's uh, irritable bowel disease. And then the other is if, if you've if it's not necessarily them, is then to start thinking, okay, what do my habits look like around uh, around diet and things like that in and around the, the training session? Because, yes, it's sort of like a jokey topic in runners, like runners' trots is just a thing, but it shouldn't be something that's happening on most of your runs. And is because I just always pop modium, no matter what, just as a, a safety net. Are there any... I've never heard of any downsides to doing that. Does it affect the gut in a negative way or? We've not looked at this. And do you know what? This is a question that we've got asked a lot. I've never seen anything to suggest that um, like acute use, like one-off does do harm. Again, I'm going to cover myself and say that I'm, that I'm absolutely not a clinical expert in yeah. that particular Um but again, anecdotally, I know lots of athletes that do that, particularly before big races as well. Then um, their specific question from Dooley GJ, um, any suggestions for people suffering from ulcerative colitis? Oh, uh, the perfect question to ask just after I've said that I'm not clinical experts in this area. <laughs> um, I don't want to just give it like a, a, the awful emphasis. Oh, speak to your GP, speak to your medical professional. Yeah. That's obviously yeah. the thing to do. I think as long as there are no like contraindications, there's nothing. Um, there's no particular reason. I think the general scenario will be the same as as everybody else, right? It'll yeah. be your own individual uh, little experiments and seeing what does work for me, what doesn't work for me. The difference will be in that. Uh, flare-ups, especially in an ulcerative colitis, can mean that sometimes there might not be anything you could do, and so you might just need to readjust your your training for for that week or those couple of days. You might need to take it easy. Definitely, uh, don't do any runs too far from home if you're not prepared, or don't go doing any huge interval sessions. Um, 
from what I've seen that there's not a negative effect of, of continuing to train and to, to run. Um, so as I said, as long as everything else is covered, then there shouldn't be any reason. Then um, the last one from Neil, which is, I think, fairly. It's a pretty fairly... good. I think. I think that's. I think that's a question that most people will will need answered because I think it's a good one. It's the one that's saying, "Go for it. Go for it." So he says, "Maybe too late, but what should you do if you puke and you don't know what you've lost?" Um, so in essence, what would you recommend? Little and often after, or ram as much down as you can, um, as as you can to get your stomach and gut going again, because you're, I assume because you're nervous you've lost all of that nutrition. Do you know what? Um, so if, if anyone follow Western States, did you guys watch Western States? So did you see uh, Hayden Hawks said that <laughs> he had terrible symptoms. He felt dizzy, threw up, and then that seemed to like get rid of all of his issues. So, Vomiting, nausea, all these things are definitely one of the biggest unknowns at the minute for for sports nutrition and ultra endurance and things like that. What I would say is, first of all, if you're vomiting, like just make sure that you're like okay to continue, and that if you've got crew and stuff like that, maybe they need to be the ones to check you out first. You're not. There's no reason to like pull you from the race. There's no uh, no issues there. I think from then the fuel inside of things. Assuming that there were no issues with your fueling plan anyway, so it wasn't your fueling plan that made you uh, be sick, I would probably just continue as was planned if you can. So if you need to make the adjustments like we said before, so if, if all of a sudden now you look at even the thought of that next gel is making you feel a bit sick again, readjust that. Otherwise, I wouldn't try and do anything in particular to then replace what you've lost or anything like that. You don't need to start ramming things down at a higher rate because that's just going to cause more problems down the line anyway. Well, Neil, Neil should. Neil should. You should, Neil. <laughs> I think you should you're, You should be the person that, that tries that approach out and then maybe everyone else tries the just... Yeah, the, report back to us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I think that's covered all the questions from the, uh, the D-Ballads. It sounds as if, in general... We need to be aware of our gut health. There are things that can be beneficial, but it's just to it's a kind of watch this space to actually get specifics in the future. Yeah, definitely. And like I said, it's it's one of those in that it's quite nice in that the gut seems to align with all of these other areas of health that we know are important. And the advice probably isn't a million miles away from that anyway. Like eat a good varied diet, eat lots of fruits and vegetables limit your intake of, of certain foods, have more of others. But like I said, it's really boring. I feel like I should come on and like make <laughs> something really sexy. And, and, and so I said, if you like fermented foods, great, include some fermented foods. If you don't, no issue, you can still get lots of benefits from other types of foods that have loads of fiber and stuff like that. Um, and and do, do you know, is, is there a good reason why we like the smell of our own farts? I wish I knew the answer to that. Because <laughs> that is one that I've honestly... <laughs> I've honestly had so many times. The, do you know the other one as well that I'll just quickly tell you is that when I first started, I used to get the the rugby teams constantly um, asking me how do they stop farting <laughs> or how do they make their farts smell less, and uh, I still don't know a great answer to the the smell one. You should just come up with, literally use that <laughs> as a testing ground. Tell them each a different thing and get them to report back. <laughs> just do a little mini experiment. Just get yeah, them to exactly. do that. 
Can you what, yeah, what, charcoal, what, eat charcoal, oh. see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> and any other kind of last minute tips or, or things that we've maybe not covered that you think are always good to put out there? No, I think as I said, it, it's it's something that is a big topic. It's it stokes lots of people that interest. Um, and the most important the most important thing, as I said, is for those who have lots of issues all of the time. Yeah. Like eventually, you are going to need to try and speak to uh, a, a registered sports nutritionist, a clinical dietitian, go see the GP, something like that. If you're having, like I said, I think sometimes we definitely like we have now. You joke about it and you laugh about it. But I think some runners then think, oh, okay, so that means I could probably uh have symptoms every other run and that's just what happens mm. uh, at some point you do need to go and check it out well amazing well thank you so much for your insight today and, and if people want to follow you and to continue reading your future research what's the best way for them to do that best way uh for research is probably my twitter so that's pew underscore jamie um you can follow me on instagram but you you might get one picture like every six months or something like that so it won't be the most fun <laughs> so it's the one where i'll post all the research and stuff like that if anybody has like, any questions about any of the research anything like that then they're more than welcome to just reach out through my email which is on the university website through social medias and stuff like that like, more than happy to answer any questions point people in different directions and, and things like that definitely and when's the western states coming out oh, that will be I, I, this is one of the horrible things about research this will be a few months we've got some preliminary data from like, how many people had symptoms and the easy subjective stuff the microbiome stuff will be a few months um but i'll definitely update update you guys as something comes through yeah we'd love to and if anything new comes in the future please do bear us in mind because we'd love to hear no, absolutely. I've only realised as well. I've been doing this that I, I didn't have a light on when we started. <laughs> dark, I've only, and I've only just looked at myself in this bottom corner picture. <laughs> now I'm seeing completely Getting more and more sinister. <laughs> well, J Jodie's just joining us back. Jodie, was there one more? We we were just about to r wrap up, but was there... <laughs> oh no, I was just making I was just making a funny comment of where where can people send their uh, stool samples? Or <laughs> that was it. No, I, thought, I thought you've probably cut me off because you think I have to. It was worth the wait, worth the wait. <laughs> Brilliant. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Jamie, and um, all the best with uh, your future of booze. Perfect. Thanks for, for having me on. Honestly, it's been, uh, it's been awesome for the invites. So cheers. Finally did it. We finally got a doctor. I got, got doctor got on. Help doctor on. <laughs> <laughs> There's been a few actually. There's been yeah. a few, isn't it? It's like and and they've they said yes, and then uh, they obviously they've got then got a bit more popular, and then said no fuck off, or they've had a book out and gone actually yeah. no, we're not going to do it. yeah, or something like that. Because yeah, health, I mean it's gut health like this. It's almost like the new the new kid on the block in terms of the health thing, isn't it? Like you know, if you do gut health. You're kind of in the sexy, the sexy area of of, of shit. <laughs> yeah, it's weird how I can't think of many times that industries have sprung up so quickly. I guess CBD would be another one. I still don't really understand what CBD how it helps, and it's everywhere. But um, you know, I'm I'm I've done all the different gut things just to try them out because I think it's yeah. quite fun. But Mama B, she's got some gut yogurt in her fridge, and 
it, it really is everywhere now. But that's the thing. I, you know, I went to, like I was talking about that, um, the issue that I had with uh, the antibiotics and, and, I, and I was having stomach issues and I was having this and I went to see a nutritionist and the, the nutritionist was like, oh, just go and take some like some like probiotics. And I'm like, well, what, what will that help do? And they're like, eh, just take them. Just take them and see how you feel, and it's like, well, you, like there's a, it's almost like acupuncture. You're like, you say you got acupuncture, you're like, oh, it works, but but how does it work? And they're like, ah, don't ask questions like that. <laughs> so really, we need to we need to needle in probiotics into the stomach. Is is the ultimate solution? Combination of the two. If you like this episode, though. We've we've interviewed a fair few doctors. Um, we interviewed Guillaume, I can't remember his surname, about fatigue. Um, had Tim Noakes talking very controversially a couple of times. And if you're really interested in nutrition, Rini McGregor is always great. We've had her on probably three times, I'd have thought. It's quite hard to tell because we always have her at the run show as well. But the very first episode we have of her talk uh, talks a lot about race nutrition nutrition for sport in general but she was really good at talking through how to train the stomach how to train the body and figure out which foods actually it responds to you respond to and, and really come up with a strategy for doing 100 mile 24 hour races which is her specialism and actually uh, professor jones is great professor andy jones we've had him on a couple of times one of them talking specifically about the nike sub 2 project the other one talking about more generally his background where he discovered um, the beetroot, the nat nitrates diet. Um, we spoke about Tim next before. He was talking about hyponutrenia, um, among other things. But, yeah, <laughs> if, if there's a topic or a an individual you'd like us to interview, then do message me either on Instagram or david at badboyrunning.com and follow us on Instagram to be able to ask questions like we did today to our future guests. Then yeah, absolutely. I, I think yeah, I I think specifically we've we've got into like some real real depth actually with some of these very specific things. So if you have suggestions of things that we haven't covered that are really specific that maybe other podcasts haven't covered or other podcasts you've heard on on different podcasts, then yeah, let us know because I think I think these some of these ones have worked really well. Especially we have this kind of theme around taste and food and uh, gut mm. and and everything that we seem to be exploring at the moment. Yeah, and actually have our. Has, has, has our episode come out with um, the Oxford yes. Professor? Yes, Oh, absolutely. great. Yeah. Oh, that was perfect. All to do with what actually impacts your hunger and how much we eat. Um, but, yeah, please do reviewers. Please do subscribe. Reviews really help with our credibility in getting guests on in the future. And, Jody, anything yep, for me? Head over, to the, head over to the Facebook group to join the conversation. Uh, type three answers to well, so the answers to three questions um and we will let you in so you can start and meet the rest of the do badders uh by now lorna should be back so we'll have merch available again so store.badboyrunning.com <laughs> thanks guys thanks nick and the team and the crew andy and maria and anya and we will see you guys next time see you later better bye 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 better bye 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 Admit I was a clone to be messing around But that doesn't mean that you have to leave town Come back Yes, and give me one more try Cause a love like this should I never ever die Come back
Fuck you, buddy. 